0: We now begin this morning our study in the second chapter of First Peter. We have finally finished the first chapter, and we are moving into the second chapter, but we will not be completely out of the first chapter because uh, these things are, are linked. The chapter divisions are not inspired, they are put here by the previous translators that we've had so we're still kind of in chapter 1 but we're in chapter 2 now in chapter 1 just to review real quickly uh, Peter is writing here to the dispersion to those who have been persecuted and that Peter knows and warns them that greater persecutions are going to come and so he reminds them over and over again of the preciousness of their faith, of how important it is for them to persevere through this, how precious the blood of Jesus is, how blessed they are to be in his kingdom and to stand up for him. He tells them that there's certain things that God expects of them, like to walk in holiness of life. You shall be holy. You were redeemed, and uh, now you are God's people. You have purified your souls by obedience to the truth. They have now been purified, uh, washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and they have been set apart by the Holy Spirit for service unto God. And then he tells them they've been born again, verse 23, of um, through the living and abiding word of God. Not a perishable seed, but an imperishable. And then he tells them that this word of God remains forever. And uh, he talks about the word, the uh, preached word, is good news to them, and it abides forever. So here we come to the end of chapter 1. So we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to ask our pastor to read that for us. Um, first three verses of chapter two.
1: Now I'm reading from the American Standard Version. Putting away, therefore, all wickedness and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. As newborn babes, long for the spiritual milk which is without guile, that you may grow by it unto salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious.
0: Okay. So he starts off with the word so or therefore because of all these things that I have told you uh, previously in this letter that this is what you're supposed to do now. So this is not an isolated teaching. This is based on all the wonderful things that Peter has told him and he says put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. So in your verses, Peter tells them, told us in verse 23, of the first chapter, that we've been born again. Okay? And this new birth was brought about by the word of God. Now he tells us how to grow. You know, you've been begotten. You've been born of God. Now, we all know that babies don't Stay babies. They either die or they grow. So Peter is teaching the same thing, that you are newborn infants, that you now have to feed on the word, feed on the milk, or you're going to die. You need to grow. So he states in verse 2 that we are newborn infants, and it should be noted that infants will die if they do not get nourished that's the idea behind this you've just been born you're little babies now you got to grow so Peter first mentions those things that hinder growth that hinder growth that's your notes those impurities that can get in the pure milk now notice that he says put away all Malice and all deceit so we're to get rid of it all we're not supposed to just get rid of most of it and we're supposed to be holy we're not supposed to have any of these things that hinder growth remaining in us they are all's so we're to strive to get rid of anything that hinders us our, our, <coughs> our spiritual growth top priority you're to grow up we are to grow up now, according to Leon's linguistic and exegetical key to the Greek New Testament, here's some definitions. Uh, some are fairly um, simple. They all have been fairly simple. Uh, there's malice, which seems to be an all-inclusive term for wickedness. Any kind of wickedness is what malice would be. Deceit or guile, the ASV used guile, which is cunning or deceit by using trickery or treachery. Using trickery or treachery. And hypocrisy uh, is uh, pretend, pretense, pretending to be something that you're not. You know, we all get the, uh, the picture that we've always been warned against. Don't be something in church on Sunday morning. Don't live like Jesus on Sunday morning and live like the devil on Monday morning. We don't want to do that. We've got to put all that kind of hypocrisy away. And envy, which is begrudging others and slander or evil speaking, which would be speaking against someone, could be translated as blasphemy. So these are things that we are commanded. And it's in the, it's in the uh, imperative in the Greek uh, to get rid of it. And <clears throat> the hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they are all in the plurals. No English translation picks this up except the A-S-D. That's why I had Charles to read it. So literally it says, Long for the piercing." Uh, uh put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. So we have it. We have the word all, which should be all inclusive, and then we have it in the plural. Don't let any of this stuff seep in in any way, shape, or form. All of them. Get rid of them.
1: Okay. Any? But those are the plural in English. Huh? Hypocrisy is the plural, and envy is the plural. What are the well,
0: the, the, if you look over in your notes, there's say hypocrisies and envies. If you look in the margin of the New American Standard.
1: No, I'm saying in English. I think that's what it is. Hypocrisy can be sing, singular or plural. Well, yeah.
0: Is, well, hypocrisy is not translated there in the plural. It'd be hypocrisies
1: if it was in the plural. It's almost the kind of thing that you can't have same or plural of. Yeah.
0: Well, the What's ASV the puts it in the plural. Huh? The ASV puts it in the plural. Yeah. But, you know, you're right. It's probably not hardly any difference, but yeah. it's, it's good to know that. We're studying yeah. this. We're studying it.
1: Well, it's, there's a difference in that being more faithful to what the Greek actually says. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah, if we read through here, it's always a good idea to know the actual, literal translation. It may not really make any difference, but I'm going to point it out to you. Yes, Steve?
2: You know, as I think about these things, you know, we may think on an individual level, well, okay, I see it there. uh, um, You know, as a Christian, nobody should be involved in these things. And yet, um, on a societal level, level maybe even on the level of political action. It's interesting how many church groups who would say, of course these are sins on an individual level, but then they're okay politically. You know, there's a lot of envy out there. Therefore, there are certain people who support politicians who will steal from those who produce and give it to those who are lazy. And... You know because they envy what certain people have, and so it's interesting how maybe on an individual level they might not be guilty of these things, but they sure participate in supporting those who do these very same things on a political level.
0: Yeah, maybe that's why they, yeah, that's, seems, it in the plural.
2: <laughs>
1: that's worse than in another way. In that, unbelievers are supposed to follow the law too, yeah, if they break the law, it's
0: worse yeah. No matter who you are, you are obligated to follow the law. Contrary to dispensational teaching. You don't have your hand up the No. Okay, so I just want to make sure. I didn't want to ignore you. <laughs>
2: It'll be
0: like this. Uh, yeah, so so maybe it's in the plural because it applies to everybody. I don't know. But anyway, this uh, that's a good point. And uh, so that's especially bad in the church as we're going to see, as we're going to come to some verses that talk about us coming together as people. All right, any notes? It says, We're to long for the Word of God. L-O-N-G, long. As you, uh, it says, uh, like newborn infants, long or desire for the pure spiritual milk. Because it causes us to grow. The pure spiritual milk will cause us to grow. And the word for pure here, uh, where it says pure spiritual milk, is the same word that is used for deceit or guile in the first verse. So it's to be milk that is without guile or without deceit it's just the opposite of that there's no deceit no trickery in God's word it's pure without guile which is the way the ASV translated uh, but the word for deceit is dolon and this word used here just has an alpha in front of it which means it's just the opposite so it's pure it is without deceit, without hypocrisy, without any malice. I want to read to you something from Jay Adams on this. I think he has a very good insight on this. This is from his book, Trust and Obey, which is a practical commentary on First Peter. I uh, probably can't find it, it's out of print now. I'm going to read this to you. This crave when I Emphasize something, is because he has it in bold. It's not my emphasis. It's the emphasis of J. Adams. This craving, which the ESV says to long for, this craving for God's pure milk or truth should develop from tasting how good the Lord is. The baby gets a taste of milk and thereafter wants it as often as he needs it. The Christian must develop taste leading to a strong desire in contrast to the worldly desires condemned through his letter for what is good for him and will help him to grow holy. Thus God requires a change of eating habits. <clears throat> the wicked poisons, so often sugar-coated to make them seem palatable, listed in verse 1, must be rejected and replaced by the healthy milk of verse 2 which is a quotation of Psalm 34 8 so yeah be very careful what you eat and drink you don't want any poison in your food you get enough of it you die right so that's the idea behind this your newborn babies you need to grow you better make sure that the milk you're drinking is good milk pure milk
2: Yeah. I've had that experience, and it's a very interesting experience, very subjective, but I've had that kind of experience as I memorize God's Word. And it's like, when you start memorizing, it's like you want more of it. And it's just, there's that desire there, and it's a very interesting experience. Yeah.
0: So, from what Peter is teaching here, let me ask you this. Do you crave God's Word? You like to taste it. Does it taste good to you when you're reading it? You like to chew it up, digest it, say, I want more? That's how we should be doing. Should be spending time in the Word, tasting it, seeing how good it is, digesting it, and just want some more. Give me more. It's like a baby. You ever seen babies that keep drinking, drinking, and drinking and they can't seem to get enough? That's how we're supposed to be. All right. Through the Word, we taste God and learn how good He is. It is through His Word that we come to know Him better. All right, now through these verses, through the last part of chapter 1 and verse 2, in your notes it says here, we have seen how important it is to read and obey God's Word. Of course, reading it and tasting it and digesting it and all that's no good if you don't do it, right? Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the Word of God
2: and do it. Yes? I keep stressing that to my grandkids too because Proverbs 8 this is wisdom speaking where she says blessed is he who watches daily at my gates people, 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 I heard daily. daily blessed blessed we watch daily at his gates
0: yeah we eat every day right we're supposed to eat every day now <clears throat> Peter has shown us how important the Word of God is. We ain't got there yet. <laughs> I, I was just going to do a little bit of expounding on the Word of God here. I don't I'm not sure if we, we probably will get to it, but we're not there yet. Um, now, there is a teaching in In the church, uh, in the what's so-called church, that the scriptures become the word of God. They become God's word when you read them in a certain way. It becomes God's word. Carl Bart, who I don't recommend anybody reading, is says that the scriptures sometimes are the word of God and sometimes they're not. That make any sense? Uh, Bart doesn't make any sense anyway. I mean, I, I can't stand him. Um, you read him. I wouldn't suggest reading him, but if you do read him, you're going to end up and say, "What in the world is he saying?" He's not worth the paper that it's written on, but he is very influential. He is a lot, a lot of times people say he's the most influential uh, Christian biblical well I don't want to call him Christian he's the most influential theologian of the 20th century so and I guess it's good to know what he says so you can defend yourself against it and he says that sometimes scripture is the word of God sometimes it's
1: not so when, when you said were you quoting him when you said when you read
0: no that's just a general teaching
1: I'm not quoting him at all. Yeah. I'm just generalizing what he's teaching. Yeah, that's pretty subjective. Yeah. It comes to word after, only in your own eyes.
0: Yeah. I don't know where he gets that, but anyway. Just be aware. Just be aware. Isn't
2: that Cartesian?
0: I think it's more Emmanuel Kant. The
2: mind is yeah. determinative of truth.
0: Descartes, and I think even more Emmanuel Kant. yeah, he was full of Kant and Descartes. Bart was. They had more effect on him, obviously, than the Scriptures did. Of course, it's only the word of Descartes at times, right? (laughs) He wouldn't say that about Descartes or Kant, but he does say that about God. Now, that's not the idea that our Westminster divines had. I want to just point out, out a couple of things to you in the very beginning of our Westminster Confession. Um, he talks about the light of nature making men inexcusable for not knowing God. All men know God; they know that the Christian God exists, and because of the work of the law in their heart, their conscience bearing witness, so they have this inner light, so to speak. Plus, they have creation. That's enough to convict a man of being guilty um, of ignoring God and not obeying God. They are without excuse. Those people that say they know God, there is no excuse for them saying they don't know God. Now Van Til says they know God and they don't know God. And that's about what our divines say in the very first part here. They know God They know He exists. They know they're accountable to Him. They know they're going to be judged. They suppress that truth. And so, in a way, they don't know God. Now, the confession says that it leaves men without excuse. But it goes on to say that yet the uh, creation in our inner light, there are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation. So we must have the Bible to know God as our Savior, to know that we have a Savior, that God has provided that for us, and He tells us the things that we need to know. So He says He commits the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. So this word of God for salvation is most necessary. We are born again from the word of God and the spirit. So that Peter understands that, of course, he's an apostle and so he keeps hammering home to these people how important God's word is because you cannot know the way of salvation apart from God. You will know that there's a God. You will know that it's the Christian God You will know that you're under his wrath. His wrath is revealed from heaven every day against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But uh, Peter says we've been born again by the living and abiding word of God and that the word of the Lord remains forever. It doesn't become God's word or bow out from being God's word it stays God's word forever which is the good news that was preached to you and now we are supposed to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that we may grow so the holy scriptures are most necessary to tell us about our savior to tell us about what we need to be doing alright anybody have anything to add to that Okay, we will be moving. We got time left to move on to the next page. Well, can I have your hand this out? Thank you. And while she's handing that out, we'll have Michelle if you'll read for us verses four through eight.
1: Stone rejected indeed by
0: men, but chosen by God, and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture Behold, I lay in Zion
2: a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone
0: which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word,
2: to which they also were appointed.
0: here for the papers to be handed out. Thank you, Laura. Alright. Peter states that the recipients are coming to a living stone in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone... This is in the present tense which would have the idea of just people coming and coming and coming to him as a continuing process. And then David Wheaton makes this statement uh, concerning the believers being stones used to build a spiritual house, he says, by constant communion with Christ, living stone, Christians will become like him, living stones. By itself, a stone is of little use, but joined with others, it becomes part of a building. A living stone has a purpose to be part of a whole. Now I would think this would be a, no no pun intended, but a um, rock-hard argument for church membership. Mm hard argument for church membership because Jesus doesn't have lone wolves he doesn't deal with lone wolves he deals with living stones that he is they are constantly coming to him and being equipped in the new covenant temple Okay, those who don't come to him reject him. It says, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men. Uh, now, according to Roger's linguistic and exegetical key of the Greek New Testament, this means to reject after examination, to examine and to deem useless. They look at Jesus, they consider him, say he is totally useless and not worth even paying attention to. They examine him, they deem him useless. And uh, they're in deep trouble with God. They're in deep trouble with their judge. God has given them this precious gift. I don't know if you've ever experienced or not, but somebody you really love And you've gotten them the Christmas present to end all Christmas presents. And you just can't wait to give this person this Christmas present. You just can't wait. And then on Christmas Day, that person opens that present up. It's not. That's useless. How would you feel? I don't think you would feel good. I don't think you'd have a good Christmas. It would crush you. Well, that's the way God takes it when people reject His only Son in whom He loves. They have no idea what they are rejecting and what kind of danger that's putting them in in the presence of God. I believe most of you know who John Piper is. Sir. Piper, not Joy Piper. Uh, he's, a, he's basically a devotion writer. Um, he's a great devotional writer. Yeah, I, I read him. I wouldn't take a systematic theology course from him, but he is a good devotion writer. He has a book out called, let me see, make sure I get it right, The Pleasures of God. Now, this is an interesting book. I think it's the first 33 pages. It's called The Pleasures of God. And as I was reading that, I would say, it just shows how much the Father loves the Son. And I think that is a wonderful 33-page argument on how terrible it is if you're an unbeliever and you have rejected God's Son. I would recommend reading that. It's just the first chapter. shows you how precious Jesus is in his sight. And if you examine him and reject him and deem him useless, I guarantee you, you don't repent. You've got a hard day coming on Judgment Day. And John Piper isn't going to tell you least 33 first 33 pages are just to make sure that you respect God's Son. And that's what he's saying. Alright, back in your notes. Jesus Christ was rejected and crucified. God raised him from the dead and planted him as the chief cornerstone, as we read in verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So he takes this ascend, this resurrected and ascending Lord Jesus, and he places him down as the cornerstone of the building. The first step, the first stone in the new covenant temple. There's not going to be a literal temple rebuilt. This puts beyond all argument that the new covenant temple is Jesus Christ at the cornerstone And us Christians as living stones being put one by one into the new covenant temple. And up until, and now in these last days, he is adding living stones one by one into the new covenant temple. A lot of people are going to be surprised we don't have a physical temple in Jerusalem with Christians offering up bulls and goats to God. That's just not going to be. And Peter argues even more later on in these verses. Let's look at those now who reject him, the unbelievers. The unbelievers discard him, but he comes back. They think they're rid of him. But we see in verse 7, so honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it gets even worse. It's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's look at Matthew twenty one and forty. It gets even worse for them. <clears throat> I'll begin with verse thirty nine. In this parable, they took him, they took Jesus and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other remnants, other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits and the one who falls on this stone now remember he said they're going to stumble over it and now he says a one who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him so Jesus Christ, who was crucified and He was raised and ascended and and coronated in heaven, God has taken and He's placed Him as a chief cornerstone, and He's adding Christians one by one. And those unbelievers that reject them, they're going to stumble over this new covenant temple, and they are going to fall, and they're going to be broken to pieces. And they are going to be crushed. The new covenant Christians are going to crush their enemies because they are living stones in God's new covenant temple. The new covenant, I mean, unbelievers discard him. He comes back. God promises that he will not go away. They stumble over him. They're crushed to powder by him. So the consequences of rejecting God's Son will last forever. That is a decision that a person makes when they reject the chief cornerstone. That is a decision they're going to have to live with
1: throughout all eternity.
0: Okay, um, questions?
1: Yeah, Would you say this this whole section here on uh, the stones and the spiritual house? it's about the church on earth. It's the church militant.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really strong post selection, to Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, would you say that? Oh, sorry. I
2: have a question. Oh, okay. uh, so, um, would you say that this? Uh, this is covenantal context here. So, would you say that these who are rejecting? chief cornerstone are the Jews and specifically that he has in mind that are unbelievers that are rejecting this or is it hypocrites in the church in the, uh, in this temple that he's building up that are rejecting the, the chief cornerstone I would say he's
0: mm-hmm. teaching free, chiefly against Pharisees in Matthew 21 and then Peter here and we'll look at this next week, because we're going to look at this back in the Old Covenant. But this, in uh, Peter, I think he's talking about anybody that rejects him. He's talking specifically about the spiritual leaders in Matthew 21.
2: It's you know. co- covenantal context, right? So it's not like just unbelievers out there in the world. It's...
0: Yeah, I, I would say covenantal context in Matthew 21. But I think Peter problems here to anybody that's persecuting the church.
2: I have basically had the same okay. question. Okay. Because it says builders, you would think they're talking about the Jewish leadership, right? Yeah. That was supposed
1: to build it properly yeah. but rejected Jesus.
0: Yeah. Anybody else? we got to get moving here. Um,
2: Bud, can you close us in prayer, please? The
0: hell of following comes